All right, should we try again? <laughs> well, I understand that you like a few of the uh, common sense thoughts of the day this week. Yes, two in particular that I uh, I thought our listeners and readers uh, and uh, fellow patriots uh, would would appreciate. And one was your uh, digging up the fact that Sam Adams did not say the famous thing that's that's attributed to him, um, which is, and, and I don't know that it's it attributed to him exactly this way, but the, the quote is, revolutions don't require a majority to prevail, but rather an irate, tireless minority keen to set brush fires in people's minds, which is sort of, what we would like to do with common sense, we'd like to set a lot of brush fires. Um, but this has always been, you know, a, a quote we attributed to Sam Adams, who was, you know, kind of the, the number one rabble rouser, uh, maybe uh, kind of competing with uh, Patrick Henry and so on, but uh, a major force in the revolution. And it turns out that this wonderful quote isn't him, it's Diane Ackerman who wrote a, uh, uh, a biography, The Man Who Made a Revolution, uh, I guess back in, in uh, 1987, in something she wrote uh, in that, that book, she said- well, it's, it's not a book, it's, it's an article in Parade. Well, it should be a book, Tim. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, in an article. Well, now we, now this great quote's not even in a book, it's just in an article. No, uh, uh, the truth is, you know, so often on, in this internet age, you know, uh, Abraham, every quote by Abraham Lincoln turns out not to really be by Abraham Lincoln. And you, you get Jefferson quotes or different people's quotes that you've, you've known for years. And then it turns out, no, they never said that. That was, you know, misattributed. But the bottom line is uh, Diane Ackerman is right. And that it's, it's, a, it's just one more signal of how important it is for an individual to stand up and do something because you impact other people. And it is not that we have to convince every last soul in the world that we're right. Hey, let me interrupt here just a moment in the middle of Paul's talking. Uh, this is a podcast. It's called This Week in Common Sense. Paul Jacob is the star. My name is Timothy Verkula, and we recap the big stories of the week that have appeared on Paul's website, thisiscommonsense.org. So back to Paul. So many of us are already on the same page. We don't need convincing and persuading. Uh, sometimes we need a little uh, reinforcement. But the key, it seems to me, is for us to get together and take action. And it's why I am such a fan of initiative and referendum, because it allows us, without going through public officials, elected officials, partisan legislatures, uh, it allows the people on issues, not on some you know, red team versus blue team, to bring forward changes, important changes, and oftentimes questions that need to be asked, even if the answer sometimes in an initiative is not the answer we want. So often by having that question on the ballot and getting people thinking about it, even when we lose, we win because the issue gets brought up again and again and 
people start to change their minds and there are reforms that are made and so on and so on. So it's, it's not as if every time we do an initiative, uh, it, it succeeds, it doesn't. But I, I, I look back to uh, my brother was involved in an initiative and I, I gave him some advice, which I'll take full credit then. Uh, but he was involved in an initiative years ago in Arkansas, uh, Axe the Food Tax. And it got crushed. I can't remember exactly how badly it got crushed, but it was literally almost 70-30 no. And they did go to abolish the, the tax on food and medicine. So it wasn't all the sales tax, but it was all the sales tax on food and medicine, which at the time was like 7%. And as I understand it, the statewide bite now, years later, decades later now, is like 2%, 3%. So they were crushed at the ballot box. But in essence, the political powers that be moved their way. And, and so it's a victory. So uh, that's, that's, I think, uh, it's, it's a great quote. It's not Sam Adams anymore, but, but what the heck, it's, uh, it's still a great quote. The other one I would point out to people, and we do one of these every day at thisiscommonsense.org, but it's from Marina. Uh, I had this written out somewhere and I realized I haven't written it out, but it, it's kind of like it sounds of say, I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm the worst Jones and Wilson and Thomas are like words that I can barely pronounce, much less any other name. I don't know what it is. And especially if I'm ever on the spot, it's like my, you know, my ability to uh, repeat a name correctly uh, goes out the window. It's it terrible. looks like Marina of, okay. Osvionakova. Osvionakova. No, Osvionakova. No, Marina Osvionakova. Now, see, if I'm looking at the words on the screen and I say them like 15 times in a row, bam, I've got it. <laughs> but anyway, she says, uh, she, the, she is the uh, anchor uh, on Russian TV who came out and had a sign behind the other anchor who was delivering the news, uh, basically saying, this is a terrible war. And uh, here's, here's what she said. Sadly, during the past years, I worked at Channel One doing Kremlin propaganda, and I'm very ashamed of this, ashamed that I allowed lies to be broadcast from TV screens, ashamed that I allowed others to zombify Russian people. We were silent in 2014 when all this started. That's when they, the Russians took Crimea. We didn't, uh, and the U.S. was fairly silent too. We didn't protest when the Kremlin poisoned Navalny, uh, which would, of course, somebody who's run against uh, Putin and, and been a, a thorn in Putin's side and who's now in prison on, on completely ridiculous charges. I go on, uh, she goes on. We just silently watched this in, inhuman regime at work and now the whole world has turned its back on us and the next 10 generations won't wash away the stain of this fratricidal war. We Russians are thinking and intelligent people. It's in our power alone to stop all this madness. Go protest. Don't be afraid of anything. They can't lock us all away. What jumps out at, at me about that quote, I mean, there's a number of things, a long quote, and it's someone who took one heck of a risk uh, to do what she did. 
But the ending of it, she says, they can't lock us all away. And you'll notice over my shoulder, the one uh, picture I have from a protest in 2014 during the umbrella revolution or the umbrella protests in Hong Kong, there is a big sign that says, they can't kill us all. And it struck me that, uh, that that so defines the last century. It so defines thus far this century that we are dealing with governments where we feel a need to say they can't kill us all, where we feel a need to say they can't lock us all away. And it's when you when you think about uh, like I think about Poland and Lech Walesa uh, and the courage they showed. I think about Czechoslovakia and people pouring into the streets. Um, and these are people who are unarmed. Lech Walesa was sitting at home where they could come pick him up and put him in a gulag anytime they wanted. Nothing to stop. The, the Russians or the Polish Russian controlled government from doing that, except public opinion. And sometimes people will talk like uh, Mayor Bloomberg, sometimes when he talks about China, he's always trying to pretend that they really have to worry about public opinion a whole lot. Well, and yet again, they do. And they don't because of course they can roll tanks over people. They can shoot people in the head. They can take people to prisons in large numbers and keep them locked up. So the idea that they have the same reaction to public opinion that you might in the US of A or in other countries that are democratic and have a much larger measure of individual freedom in them, to pretend that is wrong. But at the same time, they can't kill us all and they can't lock us all away. And the unity of a society opposing tyranny, uh, you know, can overcome that tyranny. So it's, it's kind of an insane thought to have that we have to kind of reassure each other by saying, hey, they can't lock us all up. They can't kill us all. But it's actually a pretty doggone important statement to make because people have to realize, look, at the end, um, we don't have the firepower to beat them, except maybe in the U.S. of A., where people have, uh, you know, I think the American people have more firepower than our government, thank goodness. But even if we don't have that fire, firepower advantage, through unity, through communication, uh, most people throughout this world want a measure of freedom. And they want governments controlled by the people, not the other way around. And, and we, have to, we have to have a certain amount of, of connection and unity with our fellow man if we're going to be successful in stopping the totalitarians. And I'm talking about Xi Jinping, and I'm talking about Vladimir Putin, and I'm talking about all the totalitarians in the U.S. deep state and in US uh, academic institutions and so on and so on. Uh, the totalitarians are not all uh, in the Politburo in either Russia or China.
it would be a lot easier to handle totalitarians elsewhere, I think, if we didn't have so many here. Yes, yes, it, it, it's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And, and uh, you know, it's funny because when, when I'm arguing with people sometimes about what we should do about China and so on, so often there's the, oh, this is just a, you know, uh, kind of a macho USA, USA, and that, that somehow it's, we want the Americans to win, you know, the gold medal, not the Chinese. And frankly, you know, there's just not even a smidgen of that sensibility in me or in most people who are talking about these issues. And for me and for you, Tim, we've discussed this so many different times. Um, the fear is that Xi Jinping and the American deep state are on the same page and it's not our page, so. Yeah, I think that's almost certainly the case. It's an interesting problem when you realize that you don't really know who all your enemies are and the ones who pretend to be your friends, some of them are not your friends. And, but yes. we just don't know how deeply unfriendly they are. We don't really know this because, you know, Biden has been acting pretty antagonistic towards China as well as Russia. Uh, and it's been kind of, kind of refreshing considering that he seems like a puppet of China. Uh, so I don't know how far his puppetry goes. And one thing, if, if, he, if he is a puppet, he has to prove to the American people over and over again he isn't. So it's only, maybe, it's, maybe it's only the things that he needs to do for Xi Jinping that he does. And everything else, you know, it's show. My biggest, uh, biggest argument, I think, in favor of Trump over Biden, I mean, I'm not a big fan of, of either man, uh, uh, but, but China policy and Taiwan and, and all of that was a big issue. And partly because, of course, I see Biden as somewhat corrupted, uh, somewhat, uh, I'm, I'm, the words escape me, but, um, you know, they, they conflicted. They, they always talked about, you know, Russia has something on, on Trump. And, of course, what China might have on, on Biden is that they paid off his son and that according to some of the different emails on that laptop, that now have pretty much been authenticated even by folks like the New York Times who took about 16,000 years to, to come to that conclusion. But, uh, but there is that. And yet, I have to say, his, uh, Biden's policy vis-a-vis -vis China, Taiwan, uh, has been to continue almost every single tiny part of the Trump policy. Um, and in some ways has been even more friendly, you know, right off the bat to the inauguration, inviting the Taiwanese representative to the United States to come to the inauguration within when an official ask from the president elect who was being inaugurated. So it was, you know, I mean, it's one of those diplomatic things where, you know, it's a, oh, the meaning and so on. But, it, you know, if, if you if you kind of understand how it's all played out it did have uh, some, some meaning to people that, wow, this is a, a step ahead. And of course, when the Trump administration was leaving, they, they announced, and they should have done it even sooner, but they did at that point that there were no more limits, self-imposed limits on communication with Taiwanese officials. And the Biden administration has kept that. And I think that's a, a really important thing because we've got all this diplomatic BS about 
you know, what we can do and that we're going to protect Taiwan so that China can't take them over. But we kind of agreed they really are. There's one China and they belong together. And we have so many contradictory, foolishly worded, stupidly worded, you know, contradictory uh, diplomatic uh, statements that it's a mess. But the reality is what counts. And, and so to me, the more we deal with Taiwan as an independent country and the more we're communicating, the better. Uh, and, and so I, I like that policy. And I look at Biden much in the same way I looked at Trump. I was, uh, uh, and I think Trump did a number of bad things. He did a number of good things, but when he came in, uh, you know, I wasn't quite a never Trumper, but almost. But once he's elected, what are you going to do? You're going to support him when he's right. And you're going to oppose him like the Dickens when he's wrong. And what else is there to do? I mean, oh, I don't like his personality. Oh, he's a fascist. He's a dictator. Uh, Biden's bought off by China. Well, maybe he is. Maybe, maybe Russia had stuff on Trump. Who knows? It was never proven. But let's say they did. The reality is he seemed to be getting more material like war defense material instead of blankets to Ukraine than the, than the Obama administration did. And so I'd like to look at what people actually do and not just what they say. In real life, you know, your neighbor, the guy down at the market, uh, you know, you, you, you kind of want to listen to what they're saying because oftentimes they're telling the truth. They're real people. <laughs> but but when you're hearing politicians talk, there's not even the expectation that they're telling the truth. There's no reason to worry about what they're saying, except after you've looked at what they're doing. Um, so so anyway, I, I, I have been uh, pleasantly pleased with Biden's policy as far as China goes. And and again, if, if Trump was back in, and yeah, it's, it's possible, I, I kind of hope he doesn't run in 2024, but he could, he could get elected. Um, I'd have the same view of, oh, he did some good things on China policy and so on. And so on. But once he's back in, I, I'm not going to look at it like, oh, well, we could just go to sleep and rest assured he's going to do the right thing. And I think that from my vantage point, I, I, and I tell, uh, you know, a few friends I have in Taiwan, the only safe zone for U.S. policy is the American people committed enough to Taiwan that the leaders cannot go south on it. The leaders cannot decide, oh, I'm not going to listen because it's too politically perilous for them because you know, as much as, as uh, I applaud Trump's policy regarding Taiwan, and I, re and I applaud Biden's policy. Um, don't get me started on Obama's or George W. Bush's because there's no applause whatsoever. But I'm not going to take that to the bank because I know that the second that politics changes for them, all experience with politicians is they do what's in their best interest at the moment. And so, it's, it's really about where the American people on this, are on this issue. And that's why it's, it's been good to see Congress very bipartisan on these issues. That didn't come accidentally. 
it comes because they've seen the polls go from a surprisingly small number of Americans concerned about China to large majorities of Americans concerned about the deleterious effects of a totalitarian China throwing its weight around Southeast Asia and the world. Well, so I'm we had no script about that, but we went on and on anyway. How exactly. do you like that? Exactly. Well, but three of the scripts seems to be about free speech things. Uh, it looks like that that's one, one theme of uh, the first part of the week. And then, uh, and then later on, there was lab leak not disproved and the, uh, which is about Wuhan, obviously it's the most Chinesey uh, argument. And then the other is about uh, the very strange uh, results of Texas voter suppression. <laughs> which actually might be my favorite story of the week just simply because it's one of those cases where the expected effect was so different from the outcome at least the expected effect if you listen to the elites uh and listen to the media and listen to the democratic party but of course i repeat myself um let's take the first four scripts which i'd say are all a little bit about free speech and I just want to talk about them lightly. And of course, people can go read them uh, at thisiscommonsense.org and then spend a little bit more time on today's piece. We do this Friday night. Uh, are we suppressed yet? And talk a little bit about voter suppression and election laws and that kind of thing. But we, we started the week with shut up spouse, uh, which I would advise you not to say to your spouse. Uh, you know, just, just imparting a little wisdom here. Um, but this is about Jenny Thomas and it's, it's really less about Jenny Thomas than it is about our media apparatuses, uh, apparati. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, Kathleen Parker, who, uh, is kind of oftentimes put forward at the Washington Post and on TV at different times as a conservative. And she's the sort of conservative that the Washington Post likes, a uh, conservative who likes all the Democratic ideas, always votes for Democrats, always sees everything from kind of a, a more Democratic standpoint, uh, but pretends to be a conservative. Um, and and anyway, I've, I've, I've kind of had it with her you know, playing the role of a uh, conservative and always attacking conservatives. Funny how that works. Uh, Washington Post loves her. She wrote a column basically saying uh, that Jenny Thomas uh, should butt out and that her husband's on the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, and that she should leave politics to him and not get in the way. And I thought, isn't this interesting that when it comes to a conservative woman who has, you know, she's her own person, like she goes into the voting booth by herself. Clarence Thomas doesn't go with her. She and then she probably does all kinds of things on her own volition without her husband's even express written approval. Uh, and and but when a conservative woman is speaking out that she's supposed to somehow stand a couple feet behind her husband. And it just was offensive to me. Now, some people will argue, well, Jenny Thomas was part of all the 
you know, she supported the January 6th rally. She actually attended the rally. Of course, she didn't attend the, she didn't go to the Capitol and, and, you know, walk through or break in or do anything else. And she certainly was very, very concerned that the election was stolen. And, and so you can hit her on, gee, she's wrong about this, or she's wrong about that, or I disagree, or but this idea that somehow she ought to shut up is just beyond me. Um, it's the sort of thing that, that, you know, if anyone were saying about somebody on the left, well, nobody would say it about somebody on the left. You don't see conservative columnists saying, oh, you know, uh, Michelle Obama ought to shut up and let uh, Barack Obama say everything or, or Jill Biden. We don't want to hear from her. She should shut up and just let Joe Biden do everything. And if, if the argument they're making is, well, because her politics are wrong, well, then attack her politics. But that, that the Washington Post, that Kathleen Parker would write this and that the Washington Post would print it without ever any sense that they kind of thought, wait a second, I mean, you know, we strip everything away. What we're saying is, woman, shut up and follow your husband's lead. That's just, uh, and, and they miss it. They don't, it doesn't even occur to them because of course they're not thinking about women's rights as something important to women's lives. They're thinking about women's rights as a stick that we can club people over the head and give more power to a progressive state that makes all the decisions for everybody. And by the way, tells conservative women to shut up and sit down. Now, I've always kind of liked the idea that first ladies should shut up. I've never liked first ladies. I don't like them as a class of people. Uh, I've never met a first lady I've liked, but- I've never met a first lady. But I mean, just in the news, <laughs> the media loves to have to have leftist Democrat first ladies and female spouses of, poor, of famous people talking. They just they love that. They talk. They they built yes. up Michelle Obama so much. I never liked that. I don't like the way they build these women up, and they just. I don't think any reason for the first ladies to be on the cover of every magazine all the time. Michelle yes. Obama was always on the front covers. It just it bugs me. But the fact that Mrs. Trump didn't get on the front co covers of magazines, I think she got on the cover of one magazine in a positive way the whole time yes. she was, uh, Trump was in office. That was that was just absurd because obviously Mrs. Trump was the most attractive first lady in American history. That's the, that's yeah, the I, one, I think... that's the one thing we can pretty much say with with a great deal of uh, confidence. <laughs> There's no accounting for taste, but come on, yeah, right. No, that's that's I think I think that. If we held a vote, I think it'd be uh, in the high 90s. But um, she was spurned by the women's magazines, and Michelle Obama wasn't. Uh, not even Mrs. Bush was spurned. I mean, they they really had it in for Trump, and they really had it in for Trump's wife. What is her name? What, what is uh, it? Melania. Melania. Okay, yeah. Anyway. And, but, but no, all of it... I, I'll tell you something I also find just just unbelievable is the amount of people, and it's almost always women, uh, who go on and on about the first lady, that she did this or said that or whatever. And if it's political and they're being political, okay. 
but you know uh, Michelle Obama wore like a sleeveless dress at one point and you would have thought that I mean you know it was uh, tantamount to Russian tanks rolling into Ukrainian territory it was like my goodness because it could it be that big a problem that someone wore a sleeveless dress I didn't know it was even against the law and and you see that on both sides and people attacking Melania Trump it's it's like really Really, you 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 don't like Trump, but you couldn't think of anything to hit him for. So you decided to pick on his wife. I mean, it just and and the, to me, the media always plays up the first ladies, you know, and that's the way it's been through most of of the time. But then you start to notice that they play up the Democratic first ladies a whole lot more, and so it becomes a situation. It's a little bit like. Democrats oftentimes love to grab some kid. Uh, what is it, uh, Greta Thornburg or uh, I, I got her name wrong. Thunberg. Thunberg. But it's like you know she's going to be the face for it because you can't attack a child. <laughs> but, but wait a second, you're making you're putting a child out front to do all your arguing for you, and she's saying completely ridiculous stuff. So you know it's sort of the same thing with first ladies where you can't really attack the first lady will live a few years longer and you realize, oh, yes, you can. You can vicious, viciously attack the first lady if the first lady is a Republican and especially if the first lady, uh, first lady's Republican husband is named Trump. Right. It was, it was absurd. Uh, so about this, about Clarence Thomas's wife, actually I was kind of impressed that she had such wonderfully wacko ideas uh, that many of them I, I think I agreed with. For instance, I think the last election was kind of stolen. Uh, so, <laughs> but what do you mean when you say it was stolen? I think there was chicanery all over the place. Uh, I, I, I mean, for instance, the the changes in rules about voting. I, I think that none of the all that stuff was nonsense. I, I suspect that the reason they played up COVID was to get Trump out of office. The reason they they just said, oh, the reason Democrats got really interested in lockdowns is, oh, we can cause havoc for this administration. Uh, the whole right. thing, everything about 2020 was really creepy. The Time article on how they how they won the election, how they saved democracy, even calling it saving democracy by getting their candidate elected, that's insane. That's an right. insane thing. Right. And then also the two impeachments, neither impeachment made sense to me. I think the Ukraine thing is actually, that shows the extent to which Democrats are really compromised on the subject of Ukraine and in a really weird way. And I think it makes America look really, really, really bad, and Democrats even worse than America itself. And then that second one was just so stupid that I, 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 I didn't like the way Trump handled, you know, the post-election uh, right. status of the election. But I didn't sympathize with him much either because he didn't know going in that they were going to do the Democrats were going to do creepy things. But going in, and he should have. He should exactly. have because they've been doing creepy things all along. You know, um, I, I agree with a, a lot of what you've said there, most of, you know, the thrust of it. And it's it's important, I think, because a lot of times people are, well, there was fraud. And, you know, people think about, well, then what that means is some of the some of the things that were alleged were, were that they just in a, on a computer, you know, typed in, hey, Biden's got this many votes. And so they were cheating and literally giving him votes. And may have happened, but there's not solid evidence that it did. But there is just 
evidence pouring out of every pore that constitutional requirements about mail ballots and other things were ignored in important states like Georgia and Pennsylvania. Uh, you have the media actively hiding the Hunter Biden laptop story. Yeah, that's one of the big. Going, that's really one of the big ones. That really is the. That, the that's ones. a big one to me too. And of course, I I think that you know we have to be careful about our language because that's not quite the same thing as stealing an election where you change the votes and people actually voted this way, but you change it to that way. It's it, the truth is the media is free to trick us, to cheat us, to try to ruin our democracy in the name of saving democracy. And that's what they did. So I wouldn't say that they stole the election. I would just see, say that they cheated and lied to us and, and misled us and did everything rotten that you could possibly imagine somebody in the media could do. And, and I can't ever look at the networks and NPR and the Washington Post and the New York Times. And of course, at this, by the time that they were doing the Hunter laptop or not doing the Hunter laptop story, uh, you know, I already had lost so much uh, of any sense that they were played fair, even even by Washington standards. Uh, but it's you know, I think that's beyond the pale. Oftentimes, I think because we don't have discussions about politics, we just have fights and we have media outlets that just throw out their side without any real discussion. When people say, hey. The, the election was stolen, there was fraud, you have people who say, well, that's, you don't have any evidence of that, meaning you don't have evidence that John Smith went in and, and did this computer thing that changed, you know, you don't have a, a billion smoking guns. What we do have is all kinds of evidence of bad behavior by powerful forces in the media, by uh, about unconstitutional behavior by election officials in different states. Um, and that's serious stuff. And so sometimes, you know, there, there are times where you talk to say, oh, the election was stolen. And you realize as you as you kind of push that they don't really have any solid understanding of what happened in the election. They read some article, they heard somebody say something and they believed it because it's what they wanted to believe. But there are other times where you have a discussion and you realize this person does know what happened in the election and is very concerned about that. You know, when, when 100,000 ballots come in that were supposed to be checked for the signature on the outside of the envelope and aren't checked and then are put in the stack and they're all counted, that's, um, you know, that's, that's not fraud necessarily but it's illegality, it's lawlessness. And it's not the way, it's, it's having an election without the rules being followed. And you can't go back and say, well, those votes were not right and shouldn't be counted. Any judge is gonna say, look, somebody made a mistake, but you can't, you can't take away you know, Sam and Betty's uh, vote because somebody in the election office forgot to check their, their you know, envelope when it came in. Anyway, that this this leads a lot of people, I think, to be focused on not relitigating the 2020 election, uh, 
I think Mr. Trump would like to relegate it. I think there are others who would like to. I think there are a lot of people on the left and on the Democrat, you know, Democratic payroll who'd like us to keep talking about it because it it kind of creates this everything's about Trump and they don't have the proof. And, and when people overstate things and then can't come up with the evidence, it makes them look bad. But smart people are looking at the election process and trying to fix it. And maybe we should just beeline right to Friday's piece with all of this discussion. Are we suppressed yet? And, and Friday's piece is about the first primary election held in Texas, first one I'm aware of in the country, in this cycle, after last year, a number of states, Iowa, Georgia, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, uh, you know, Texas, passed changes to their election process. And as I point out in this piece, and, <clears throat> and here we're just talking about Texas, but the same was true in all these other states, um, there were parts of these bills that I would quibble with, that I would think, well, that's not the way I would do it, or that they went too far here. But for the most part, I wouldn't quibble with these bills. I, you know, I, I might have done different things. I might have done more on this end or that end. But for the most part, like in Texas, you know, they got rid of 24-hour voting. Well, you know what? Most places in the country don't have 24-hour drive-through voting. That was a COVID response. And of course, what happened is in some counties, they had 24 hour uh, voting and they had all kinds of special things to get out the vote and they didn't in other counties. And so what the, and it turned out that a lot of the counties, they did all these special things to get out the vote were Democratic counties. You also had uh, Mr. Zuckerberg with Facebook, who of course is an even handed player whose heart is pure in every way, but he gave millions. And those millions tended to go to push the vote in places where Democrats voted and to encourage public employees to vote who vote overwhelmingly Democrat. And so you had private money going to public election bureaus Secretary of State, county clerk, to do things in Democratic areas <clears throat> to promote the vote and get more turnout that weren't done in other areas. So you've got a little bit of an equal protection argument there. And of course, we all know that had Charles Koch decided to fund those only in counties that you know voted more Republican, we would have heard about it all night and day long. So there's all these things that different states are reacting to that most people I know who are thoughtful and read the paper and try to keep up, they never heard about any of the details. They heard about the congressional plan the Democrats had to help everybody, to help people vote. They were all wonderful. They're wonderful people and they care about democracy and everything the Democrats do in Washington is because their heart bleeds for what's right and true and just. Oh, this is just an objective report and an average objective report on any news channel you want to see except for Fox. Um, 
And, and so, you know, you, that's what you got on the national level, even though they were literally allowing their legislation would have allowed President Biden to pick another FEC commissioner to give the Democrats a majority on the FEC to be able to clamp down on speech during the next election. How many people know that? Almost none. And, and I'm talking about almost none of the people who follow the news and read the newspaper every day because the media doesn't tell us because we're too stupid. We might not vote right if they actually gave us the information. Hell, heck, we could vote Republican. <laughs> so so and and then in the states, it was nothing but suppression, um, even though you could point out that, wait, this suppressive law, this law you're saying is suppressive in Texas or Georgia has more early voting than Delaware, where Biden's from, or New York, or, you know, so on and so on. What, what gives here? Well, Texas is just one example, and I wanted to present that example. And so I went through some of the different statements that had been made about how they were destroying democracy, how this was going to suppress the vote. And then they actually held an election. And in the primary, of course, Democrat vote went way down. Oh, 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 wait, wait, no, no, it went up. The vote went up. Democratic vote went up. Republican vote went up roughly 33% from the previous midterm primary vote. So all of this suppression that was designed and going to ruin democracy, we end up holding an election and more people turn out than had turned out previously. Now, <laughs> I haven't heard a single news story cover it this way, um, but that's, that's the reality. And that's why we, don't, we don't, didn't hear about the turnout going up. If you're trying to suppress the vote and the turnout goes up, didn't you fail? And so either Republicans are not very good at suppressing the vote because they keep passing laws trying to, and the vote goes up, or the national media is full of it. And I submit it's the latter. And here's the other thing that most people do not know, and that is that there were 10,000 votes in Harris County, that's Houston, Houston and, and parts around it. Uh, I believe it's the largest county in, in Texas. 10,000 votes that were tabulated, went through the machines, but were not added to the count. Meaning 10,000 people, 6,000 roughly, Democrats, because they vote in, in separate party primaries, so we know this, 6,000 Democratic votes, 4,000 Republican votes, roughly. And, and they would have been gone. They would have been denied their vote, except the law that the suppressors passed required audits under certain circumstances. They had an audit. They found these 10,000 votes. And these 10,000 people got to have their votes counted not suppressed because of the legislation passed by Republicans in Texas. So quibble with parts of the legislation, 
But the whole story of what happened in Texas is a complete refutation of what the national news media has been telling us for over a year. And of course, they're not going to tell us that everything they said turns out to be complete hooey. And it's left to this is commonsense.org and you and I, Tim, to, to tell the public this story. So that was the big story of the week, in my opinion, mainly because, I mean, it has a lot of evidence and there's, and it's pretty clear. That's one of the unfortunate things about the 2016 and the 2020 elections is it doesn't seem as clear to people is the evidence for the shenanigans doesn't seem as clear. Now to me, it does because the big 2016 uh, complaint by Democrats was Russian interference. And they specified precisely what Russia did which has spent under $500,000, actually under $200,000, I think, yeah, uh, I think it was in Facebook ads, the effects of which had to have been negligible. But, and this is the fun part, in this last election, the suppression of the story of Hunter Biden's laptop, we know by data, had a determining factor on the election. That is, the polling suggests exactly the most independents who heard this, who found out later, would have not voted for uh, Biden if they'd known the truth about Hunter Biden. So that was a very effective uh, media interference in the election. I think the deep state yes. and the media together interfered in the election a thousand times worse. That's my guess, a thousand times than Russia was accused of doing in. 2016. So this is to me not a real big unclear thing, but it is to most people, partly because a lot of the evidence that seems most persuasive about actual fraud has been weirdly ignored. Uh, just, just it, we stonewall it. Uh, you hear a story, you read a story, the, the facts look there, and then all of a sudden it goes nowhere. I don't know what to make about the, those stories. So that's all, ugh, I don't know. But the big story is actually the Hunter Biden laptop and similar uh, suppressions using social media of COVID and of uh, and especially of the Biden corruption. But that being said, Trump wasn't very good. His his he was a horrible president in 2020, and he really blew the COVID. He was yeah. not he was not the empathetic healthcare leading, you know, he, 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 he missed it and he missed it on doing the lockdowns and other things. Although to, to be more clear on that, there were no lockdowns imposed by the federal government. And of course, had it been a different president, there might've been, uh, those were done at the state level. But But in mid-March, he did insist that we try lockdowns. And this was something that came from the, you know, his bureaucrats and he gave this really heartfelt and weird speech. I don't know what they did to him. I, I have the feeling that they took him in the back, in a back room and fed him with drugs or something. That was a very weird speech. And uh, I don't know, that, that everything after that it was really bad. And so my sympathy with him is about zero, but my sympathy for the American people is pretty high still. Because we got screwed. <laughs> mine still, mine has stayed pretty high for the American people. We're, we're, I'm, we're suffering together, uh, but... No, that was, you know, Trump, I think, realized, you know, that, well, the media made a big deal out of the fact that he knew because he made some comment early on, this is serious stuff. And then 
you know, tried to kind of reassure people, look, we're getting a handle on it. And the media treated that as if he, he knew it was going to be bad, but he wanted to trick people when I think it was pretty obvious. I mean, look, if you start from the vantage point that Donald Trump is Satan, well, then you can say, well, everything he's doing, he's doing because he's Satan. Okay, well, then there's no sense with me discussing it with you because you're a lunatic. But I think however obnoxious he may be in some people's minds or whatever else, that he is a human being and that he saw this terrible thing coming, was very concerned, and he was trying to put on a brave face for the American people and do the best job he can. And, and I don't think he did a, a terribly good job, but I think it's so silly to kind of go to the point of he was actively hoping everyone would die. That's what yeah. his goal was. And, and to listen to the media tell it, that's, I don't know how you'd have any other conclusion if you believe the, the media spin was right on the, on the money. You'd kind of think, okay, Donald Trump knew it was bad, but hit it hoping we would all die. He wants, vote for Trump, he wants you and your family to die. You know, that was kind of the... Yeah, that's so bizarre. I mean, but my take is a more standard libertarian one, is that I think that what really happened here is that Americans have completely succumbed to the idea that the government is responsible for their health. And yes. I think what Trump should have done is tell people to be courageous. We have been attacked by a foreign government. This, of course, would have been harder when we realized how much Fauci and friends were responsible. I don't know what, when that would have come out. With a foreign government with help from our own CDC, yes. Yes, it's, uh, <laughs> see, all this, is, this is, makes it very difficult for him to do anything. I don't know what he really could have done, but I know what I would have said. And what I did actually say on Facebook is that we should protect the ones who are, who are most in jeopardy, but everybody else has to be willing to take the disease and fight it off with their natural immune systems and work hard and maybe lose a little bit of weight. We knew early on that being fat was bad. We knew early on that vitamin D was good. We knew early on that there were some treatments that could work, but those, those treatments uh, became anathema because of Trump and other political things. And then the whole juggernaut, I don't, I don't forgive Trump for, the, for fast tracking the, the uh, vaccines. I think that was wrong. I'm on the other side there because I yeah. don't I don't have any problem with the fast tracking, although I do have a problem with the entire and, and Trump may have been part of this in some way, certainly played into it. This idea that we're not going to try to have any any treatments because that helps us get the emergency authorization. Yeah. That's that's malpractice. And that yeah. is, you know, that's criminal to me. That, yeah, and that was the biggest, that was the biggest not help people so that you can get your stupid vaccine through and and i say stupid i mean we'll see how good the vaccine is or not i i think uh i sure thought it was better a year ago than i think it is today but i i don't share all of your concerns about the vaccine but it 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 does seem to me that that trump um you know he wanted to ride in on the white horse and be able to save the day with the vaccine. And so he saw the political opportunities and, and also he, he saw the ability to hit China on this. And I don't think even though he was constantly at war with the deep state, 
I don't think he understood that the deep state and China are not necessarily adversarial. In this case, the and and you know when when millions are going to a Chinese lab that nobody knows about, that may not be the CIA or the NSA, but that is the deep state. It's the state that is so large and deep that we don't even know what it's doing. And and you know, someone we we did this piece this week, lab leak not disproved. And it's it's important for people to realize why, you know, we are still talking about what the origin of COVID is because we don't know. And we largely don't know because the totalitarian Chinese government doesn't want us to know and doesn't tell us. And we also largely don't know because our own government doesn't want us to know and is actively helping and boosting the Chinese lies that, oh, it's a wet market or whatever. And, and so, so we had people say, well, wait a second, what about this lab leak? They were immediately attacked as conspiracy theorists who were suggesting a bioweapon, which is kind of interesting because you kind of wonder if it wasn't a bioweapon. But the people who said something about the lab leak never mentioned bioweapon. And yet they were smeared as if they had, even though no evidence that it wasn't a bioweapon. And if you've read deeply into all of this, you know that at this same Wuhan lab that we're helping to fund, there was a separate operation that was run by the Chinese military on biological weapons and so on. So, it, you know, our media is so careful about hiding information from us that maybe it was just accidental that they didn't want us to know anything about this. But I think it's because the more you know about it, the more you realize this is a, a lot of interaction between China and the US at a level that is obviously could be dangerous to mankind. And, and when it comes out and someone suggests it, they're smeared. There's a big article written in the Lancet, the number one medical journal in the world, written by the people who were the bag men with the money from NIH to give to the Wuhan lab. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. If you were to make up a story about this and want to write it to just smear the United States government as much as you could, you wouldn't think of all these great things. Anyway, recently, somewhat quietly, it wasn't front page news everywhere and it wasn't on every TV station and so on, but there were several studies that came out, not peer reviewed, of course, but several studies that came out that suggested it must be, it must be the wet market after all. And it looks very unlikely that it's the lab leak. Well, it turns out these studies are crap. And part of it is all the, I mentioned in this piece that, you know, maybe Xi Jinping, the dictator of China, uh, basically picked these samples himself, but, but literally they're doing studies with samples that the Chinese are giving them. The Chinese who are under the thumb of the government, I mean, the guy who first said something about this was arrested 
the guy who first said something about COVID in China was arrested for saying it. And so, and, and in all the articles that you read about this, no mention, no mention of where these samples came from or that there might be some concern that, wait a second, we can't really verify that we're being given the full story. No, American media just takes whatever propaganda China might be involved in, along with our own deep medical state, and, and feeds it to us as if we're, we're idiots and are going to lap it all up. So it was, you know, we have covered this story a lot because it, it just implicates every little thing that the U.S. government is doing that shows them more on the side of Xi Jinping and the totalitarians in China, which they would love to, you know, they, they'd love to borrow some of their, their uh, uh, you know, governmental policies and implement them here um, than they are with the American people and protecting us. And I think you're right that one of the big differences in, one of the, in, in America today than 20 years ago, and we saw it with COVID, is that, you know, I think Ronald Reagan's idea that, look, uh, the government isn't the solution, it's the problem, was something that resonated with Americans. We realized, look, if we want something done, we got to do it. And, and of course, the government can set policies that are helpful. They can create a, a fair playing field, uh, you know, if they're not touching and, and controlling everything in which we can have a better economy and the rule of law and all those good things but that we don't think government ought to breathe in and out for us. And we don't think government ought to dictate everything we put in our body, whether we wanna put it in or not. And really it shows some of the influence of Obama who came in and said, government is good. Government can do all kinds of good things. We've, we've forgotten how good government can be and how much of it we need. And we are, we're having that, that battle and frankly, during COVID, the Obama forces of government is the best thing going, and we ought to give more and more power to government one the day. And uh, we'll see whether, whether we can get back in the game. I think we can kind of wrap up by mentioning two other pieces that I, I would encourage people to go to thisiscommonsense.org and, and read. The first one is Chirp Meets Buzz, and this is about the Babylon Bee, which I think is a uh, pretty funny uh, uh, satirical publication. I don't know what you call it exactly now that things aren't actually published in quite the same way. But, uh, but anyway, very funny. Seems to run into problems with censors at Twitter and Facebook and, and other places. And uh, Twitter decided to uh, pull down uh, their service and wanted them to apologize because they had given, and I'm going to, uh, I don't have it up at the, at the moment, but I'll grab it here. They had given uh, an award. Uh, uh, Rachel Man Levine. Yeah. Rachel Levine, who's the assistant secretary for health, for health and human services, department of health and human services. And she had gotten a, an award. She's transgender. So born a man, now a woman and a transgender woman. And so she had received an award, uh, USA Today named her one of the women of the year. 
And they spoof that by calling her man of the year. You could be upset that they didn't go along with what, how she wanted them to refer to her. And I tend to think in these things that, look, if it doesn't totally screw up the language and make communication impossible, I'm glad to use whatever pronoun or name or, you know, I, I, I want everybody to be happy. And I want everybody to choose to live the life they want to live. So it doesn't have to be the way I want to live my life. Bully for you. You do it your way. I'm wishing you the best. But when people can't spoof it, when people can't criticize or make fun of a public official without Twitter canceling them, well, all of a sudden, the whole way this, this country works the whole beauty of free speech is being, you know, stuffed into the garbage. And I don't like that at all. And it, it's the sort of thing where you are not going to, we're not going to get everybody, you know, kind of holding hands and singing Kumbaya if you can't tell a joke. If a, if a funny uh, operation that's constantly poking fun at different people can't do that without doing it in exactly the way that everybody says it's okay. Let me check with one more billion people to make sure that my joke, everybody agrees is okay. Well, we're not gonna have any jokes anymore and we're not gonna laugh and it's not gonna be very much fun. And so read that uh, and, and this issue is gonna come up again and again. And it seems to me, we want, to be loving, friendly, nice people, but people who can take a joke and who can, who can tell a joke and don't have to walk on eggshells always. And it doesn't help real people who are transgender for us to have this crazy attitude and try to police everybody into doing exactly what they're told to do. Um, People who are transgender are real people. And the ones I've met are not the language Nazis and political Nazis that are the people who are complaining all the time that someone is, is speaking ill of transgender people. Well, when I knew transgender people, and I, I only know one now, and we haven't had our talk yet. I want him to explain to me how he's becoming transgendered. I, don't, I want to know what he says, because, frankly, he's the least likely candidate. He makes Rachel Levine look like uh, Raquel Welch. Uh, and <laughs> I don't get it, uh, but that's okay. Um, but when I knew transsexuals, and they called them transsexuals. And they called themselves trannies back then. And that's an uh, that's a that's a forbidden word now. Tranny, you can't say tranny. Oh, they, those were these were fun-loving guys. But 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 you don't think it's actually a verboten word among trannies? Well, that wasn't in 1980 and 82. And I, and I, I suspect it's not now. I mean, it's not like I I know exactly what everybody's saying. But again and again, we see this. Uh, you know the 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 kind of wealthy white uh liberal let's let's say progressive not liberal 
uh, who's full of all the terrible things that that people are saying about transsexuals or transgenders or or on race or everything else. It doesn't seem to be the people who are actually supposedly being so downtrodden who have a problem with it nearly as much as the speech police. But a lot of it's the SJW crowd. And I do think that there is an element of elasticity of sexuality that is increasing the number of trans people now, not because people are trans by nature, but because they're trans by fad. And I think this is a bad thing. I, don't, I think it's a very bad thing. And I don't, you know, th- there's always going to be a few anomalous weirdos out there. I'm an anomalous weirdo, though not on this issue. I'm not trans, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm trans something else. Uh, there's got to be ways that I've trans something Uh, and and, and I don't fit into many categories for a number of reasons and so I'm always I like oddballs but the the um, weird lockstep what's the right word The, the weird lockstep tribalism of the modern SJW crowd I think is creating more trans kids that is young people uh, teenagers especially, and this, girls especially, who want to become boys, which is the oddest thing, because I didn't know any, uh, I knew lesbians when I was young. I didn't know any girls who thought they were boys. Now there's lots of them, and there's reasons for this. Yes. It has, it has, I don't think it has anything to do with their deep desires to be boys. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that they're very malleable in their sexuality and their identity, because that's a horrible time. Well, for, you know, basically there's a lot of people who, the teenage years is difficult. I mean, it's difficult for a number of reasons, and it's especially difficult. I don't difficult. think that's controversial. No, no, and I think it's especially difficult now, and I don't think the SJWs have made it better because they, they have a religion and they're pushing their religion. I think it's a religion. I believe gender is a, is a religious concept. I've mentioned this before, and, right. I want, and I want a complete separation of gender and state. So I don't think that a gender at all should be an issue, and so that's why uh, when this week, uh, and that's the funniest thing that happened this week was when, a Supreme Court nominee couldn't identify, couldn't define what a woman was. Right. I can do that very easily. It's, it's a very easy de- definition for me. No, but it, it wasn't for here, for her. <laughs> or, or maybe now she's kind of in between her and him, so it's her here. Well, well she's afraid. <laughs> she's afraid. She's afraid of what the SJWs are going to say. She doesn't seem to be as crazy as uh, the Republicans are making her out. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't hate her like the Republicans do. Right, right. I just don't. Uh, and though, I mean, I probably don't agree with her on much, but still, she doesn't seem crazy to me. I but heard her. She, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Uh, no, no, it's not right. a deal. I, I heard her. I heard her referred to as the most liberal person ever nominated to the Supreme Court, and I had to admit that I, I haven't listened to all the incredibly boring uh, hearing and so on. But she doesn't strike me as the most liberal. I, I kind of think both Kagan and Sotomayor are, uh, are more liberal and Breyer might be too. So, but, but anyway, it's, it's, it is funny that someone can't define woman. And of course, if you're a transgender woman, that's yeah. different than a woman who's not transgender. And I don't know that, that saying that ought to create some huge tear in the universe. And, and the truth is the opposite's true. If we can't discuss these things, then we're not going to get 
better as a society. We're not people, individuals aren't going to be able to figure it out as easily about themselves, about others. It's, it's like we need to have these discussions. And in discussions, sometimes people say stuff that, that later they wish they would have said something else. And, but if you don't ever have the discussions, they just sit in their separate places and, and are going to continue to think things that maybe you think if, if they knew more, they wouldn't. Well, let's have the discussion and let's stop constantly, you know, creating these, these uh, kind of cultural revolution type, you know, brigades that go out there and want to shout down anyone who doesn't say something exactly the way they do. It's like the, the JK Rowling uh, thing where she, she raised some concern about it. And now you hardly remember the JK Rowling wrote like the most popular young adult books uh, that really were, I read them and I was no young adult, uh, but some of the most popular books in the history a modern history of literature. We hardly remember that. All remember is she's anti-transgender even though she's not anti-transgender. It's, it's, and, and look at this, uh, this situation in sports. The idea, you know, I, I grew up, my dad sometimes would play ball with the kids in the, you know, when I was a little kid, everybody got to play. Everybody got to play. And so the, the idea of sports for me is something in which everybody gets to play everybody can participate and that's really important and so i want any transgender athlete to be able to participate at the same time when someone is you know number seven on the men's swim team and then takes hormones and different things for a year which i think is the ncaa rules and, and testosterone blockers and stuff. And of course, it's, all that stuff doesn't sound like it's very good for you. But, but anyway, okay, I'm no, I'm no doctor, so don't, don't follow my advice, please. Um, but when they do that and then swim as a, in, the, in the women's side of the, of the swim meet and win by you know 15 seconds or something, you start to kind of think, well, now, wait a second, is this really fair to the, the women who are, you know, this person is taller and bigger, kind of like a guy. And, and look, you could, we could just say, look, sports are all, there's one, there's one league and men are in it and women are in it, but men are going to win almost all the, the, the swimming and they're going to win almost all the, the track and field. And because biologically that's you know if, if some man hey i'm stronger than a woman you know who's half my size you know if, if you think that makes you just wonderful well you were born that way pal it's it's and, and to not recognize this biology just doesn't seem to me to be very intelligent so i i look at these and i think that yes we're very likely to go overboard the other way too and to somehow we're going to stop these transgenders from ruining the women's sports. There's got to be a way um, for, and I, I think it was in, in Utah, maybe, that the governor vetoed a bill uh, on, on transgender sports with the express statement that he isn't really so opposed to the policy necessarily, but he thought that we ought to take more time and get this policy right. Well, he was afraid of litigation, 
too. He was afraid of litigation. He also pointed out there's four transgender athletes that we know of in the state of Utah doing stuff. And so maybe we ought to be more focused on, okay, what, what, what would work here? But I'm, I'm very open to a discussion about that because I don't, I want these transgender athletes and I can't remember her name, the, the transgender woman who swam as a, you know, set a record recently, a woman's record in, in freestyle swimming but Leah, it was Leah, right? Leah. Yeah, something. Leah. I think that's right. And and uh, but but look, I want her to be able to compete. The question is where she competes and how she competes. And um, and you know, it it seems to me that there are ways to do this. But so far, it's been almost this kind of mal mal. Uh, we're just gonna we're gonna just attack anybody who's not happy that this this person who was on the men's team, you know, uh, a year ago is now winning all the medals on the women's team. You can kind of expect some people aren't going to be so happy about that. Yeah. Uh, I have a, a novel idea, but I, I think probably people don't want to hear it. So, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of anti-sports. Uh, I, I think sports obsession in America is really weird, and and it's also a cult. So I look at it, if you, if you really, I don't think there should be any government support of any sport. I agree wholeheartedly. Of any, of any kind, including Separ in high schools. Uh, in Separation of sports and state. I agree wholeheartedly, because to, to me, look, I know all kinds of people who hated sports growing up. I loved them, but of course, um, and, and it wasn't like, you know, I was no great athlete. I wasn't terrible, but I was no great athlete. It wasn't like, oh, I liked them because, you know, I somehow I became famous and, and won all the track meets or, or tennis tournaments or whatever, but I always loved sports and I loved them because there was a certain equality. Didn't matter who you knew or didn't know, but if you shot the shot and it went in, Almost everyone agreed, yes, it did go in, and that's two points for you. And so it had a level of fairness that I think a lot of things in school didn't have or in life. And it also, you know, it, it, it seemed like it was a way for uh, that, that, well, there were problems. I mean, the biggest problems in sports were oftentimes that the adults, you know, the, the coach on some little league team was his kid was going to get to play some, some plum position that, that maybe wasn't quite as good enough to play, but somebody else wasn't, but, but largely it seems like a meritocracy. And I think that that's a great thing. At the same time, I've known people who thought that somehow, boy, I should just force this, this kid into sports because somehow that will make a man of them or make a woman of them or whatever. And, and that sort of, you know, kind of forced sports, of course, like anything else that's forced is going to be stupid. And then the other thing is the degree to which our high schools have become educational agencies secondarily to their football. And in so much of the country, it's like uh, football is everything. And, and, you know, parents who complain that uh, they can't pray before the high school game in Texas, you know, that went to the court. 
And they, hey, we should be able to pray before a football game. And then the court said, no, you can't. And of course, they still go to the football game. I mean, football was clearly more important than their religious belief, because when the court said no, they didn't all leave the football. If nobody showed up at the football game in Texas on Friday night, I guarantee you, they would have started to think about maybe we ought to do something. So it's, it's uh, you know, the, the sports, like anything else, can be ruined. But I love them for, for, you know, I think some very, very good things. Well, there has to be good things about them. And I don't even want to argue against sports. I mean, it's just not my religion. You know, there's a lot right. of things that are, right. it is, that's, that's been my attitude for a long time. It's not my religion and uh, generate my religion. Uh, you know, there's most religions, are, all religions aren't my religion. Actually, my attitude is that of a philosopher. <laughs> and right. we, we have to remember philosophy is a very weird enterprise. It is nothing like religion in, in some really key ways. And yet the subject matter of philosophy is the same thing as religion. So this is, so this is something that really interests me. Uh, but what really gets down to is we live in a very strange time. And in fact, the one piece we haven't talked about has a title that kind of suggests what our civilization is right now. It's our uncivil war. And uh, it's really, we don't need to talk about it at length. It's just about our uncivil war, about the free speech problem we all have and our inability to talk to each other. And if people aren't, aren't aware of it, the New York Times editorial board came out with a long editorial saying that America has a free speech problem, which, which is kind of like Al Capone saying, I think there's organized crime running around <laughs> Chicago. Uh, you know, it's like, but, um, and, and as we point out in this piece, please go read it, our uncivil war. But as we point out, they do of course have to pretend that it's really the right that is, you know, trying to stop on speech, not so much the left, and, and the examples they use on the right, as we point out, are people trying to get certain books out of school libraries or out of curriculum in schools, which may or may not be a wise thing to do, but is not the same thing. When you're paying money to a school and you say, I don't want that book in the library because I don't think that's a good book for my kid to read, that's not the same thing as someone publishing something like the New York Post publishing a story about Hunter Biden and Facebook canceling it out uh, and, and, and all kinds of efforts now to, to shout down people on college campuses. Um, so so this, this piece just kind of looks at what is, we did one a week or so ago, what is censorship and what is not. And it's, it's worth kind of thinking about that, I encourage people to go take a look because when you're arguing and talking with people about free speech, uh, sometimes the right and the left come at it from a very different perspective. It does strike me that this is a gigantic admission by the New York Times that cancel culture on the left has gotten to be a huge problem. And, uh, and it's, it's, I think in some ways, the New York Times own doing. I mean, this is the, is the publication uh, that fired Barry Weiss uh, uh, because she decided to allow a op-ed, which is opposite editorial. In other words, a, an opinion other than the New York Times opinion and the rank and file people working at the New York Times were so livid 
that any conservative idea would ever be spoken or ever be written by the New York Times that they ended up, um, she ended up leaving and, and, uh, and was kind of booted out. So this is, this is progress in sort of a funny way. And this piece has the most radical statement of the week in it. I'll, I'll flash it up on screen, and, and, but we won't talk about it and, and see what people think about it. Do you remember it? I don't remember it. That's why I'm, I'm thinking, flash it now so I can see. Well, it's, it's actually not radical at all, but it, I think it would, the left would hate it with a passion. And I think a lot of people would be, just, would be concerned about it. And uh, let's see. This is the statement, so I won't just put it up. I'll put it up, but I'll also say it. And that, especially for our audio listeners. Uh, I suppose that makes sense. Those benighted fools. Anyway, uh, <laughs> taxpayer-funded teachers have no more right to teach anything they want than taxpayer-funded police have the right to enforce whatever laws they want. That's the counter to the idea that when the right or anybody you know, demands that a school not teach something, that that's censorship, but it isn't censorship, right? If, because it's it's the determination of policy by a democratic organization that's right there in the state constitutions of every state of the union. Every state of the union has it that the public schools are there for the people of the of the locations, and that the people have to have some control. They're taxed for it, and they have they vote in school boards. I think that's universal throughout the United States. You can support teachers without ever thinking that they get to do whatever they darn well please. And you can support the police all night and day without ever believing that they just get to enforce whatever laws they want any way they want. Um, and so I, I do think that that getting people to look at it that way ought to be a, a way that any reasonable person on the right or the left is going to see, wait a second, this makes sense. You know, and again, it's who's, who's supposed to be in charge. If it, if it's the public, then, you know, it's not censorship when the public starts to weigh in and say, this is what we want. Now, the second the public says to someone private that you don't get to say what you want in your own circle well, then that's uh, that's a problem. Or you don't get to say what you want on the public street, then that's a big problem. But but these are our schools. These are these are our police. And it's worth mentioning that many of these conflicts would be avoided if people would get rid of public schools and start teaching kids privately and communally and voluntarily. Above all, it's not a big deal if you want to teach creationism. In the in the school next to me, that's not. It's, I don't agree with it. Um, right. Maybe maybe I prefer the Aztec creation to the Judaic creation. I don't. But I mean, let's just. I mean, there's. Right. But we we let and we let one group do what they want. We let the other group do what they want. Here's why we can't do that, Tim. Though, because then everybody wouldn't be educated with the same ideas that create such a cohesive tightly knit country in which we're all on the same page. I mean, that is the argument that if you do this, some kids are going to learn this and some kids are going to learn that. And of course, in freedom, that's what they get to do. And right. they do that right now if they have the money. What's happening right or now- Or just the is, right community group, because a lot of poor people are in private schools and in church schools. Right. 
and right. homeschooling. It doesn't take much to homeschool a child. Right. You can teach a right. kid pretty well on free stuff that you find in your community. No, that's true. That's true. It's not so expensive to, to teach them. What's expensive sometimes is to be home and not working. Uh, and, and so that, that can be a problem. But, but the, re the reality is the, the argument against kind of allowing people to take these tax dollars that are now going to public schools, and we wouldn't have to necessarily get rid of government schools if they can get people to come to them and they have the money and they're, they're running that way, fine. I don't think they'll last very long, not unless they become much more entrepreneurial. But what, what would happen is that you would have an explosion of money-seeking education, which would then create an explosion of education designed to do what the parents of these kids wanted it to do. And of course, some kids might learn something because they're free to learn the way that their religious parents want them to, or they're free to learn that their totally non-religious parents want them to. They're, they're free to learn a more leftist view of history or more right-wing view of history or whatever. So that's a problem. We'll look at it compared to the problem today, which is we're supposedly teaching all, you know, public education is great because disadvantaged kids can then get an education, except we find out that in reality, they're doing so poorly that it's it's a, a rarity that a disadvantaged kid is getting that education in, in public schools. And the parents of those disadvantaged kids are dying to be able to get them into a charter school or into some other situation. And, and if you're gonna talk about, well, but we won't be as cohesive as a society. Well, if what's happening, what's been happening in Loudoun County, Virginia, and other places in the country with all these fights over, over curriculum and, and schools, if that's cohesion in, in your view, I think we would be more cohesive if we had a system in which people were free to learn the way they want. And then you know what? They might think they were free to discuss it with each other instead of feeling like, no, I'm in, I live in a society in which I'm only allowed to learn these things. And then I go on social media where I'm only allowed to say these certain things. And if I, if I say anything else somewhere else, I may be canceled from my position because it upsets the right or the left or the um, so so often changes to education are are argued against because that will end this perfect system we have with without any recognition that we don't have a perfect system. We have a system that is failing almost everyone that actually needs the system. I went to public schools. I don't think that they failed me necessarily, but I think I learned almost everything I know outside of those public schools. So in essence, I didn't need the public schools to get the education. So they don't get a, they don't get a gold star because they educated me. They get the gold star because they educated somebody who didn't have those advantages going in and they're failing miserably at that. So if you really care about poor kids and you care about equal opportunities, you have to do something other than just say, hey, we have a perfect system, knowing that that's a complete and utter lie. Well, on that note, we could probably wrap this up. I think we should. I think we should. There's still basketball on tonight. Oh, my. What a, what a terrible thing. What a terrible thing to miss. Sorry. I should, I should, I should, I should correct myself. <laughs> 
that's the line of the night. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll talk to you later. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Bye.